Hi, this is Burning Heron. Hey, this is Melon Bread. This is Kevin. Hi, this is Will Roy. This is Jake Cook. This is Dole, and welcome to the Green Box. Today on the Green Box, we'll be talking about agent backstories and how to write them, the outlaws, and player dithering. I would like to talk about, as a uh, player, how much or how little backstory you should have with your uh, character. And I do expect that we'll probably have a handler segment in, in somewhere in here too about how to use a player character's backstory, but let's begin with what the player can do. So first of all, when you're creating a character, you have to decide if they've already been recruited into Delta Green, which in the context of, you know, one-shot scenarios, usually that's true that you've already been recruited. Or you may, um, if you're doing a long-standing running campaign, you may have a character that's not a part of Delta Green at all. Then the backstory will kind of come on to you because you'll be playing a normal character. However, if you are already a member of Delta Green, you need to decide what was the event or what was the thing you saw or thing you partook in that led to your recruitment? Part of one of the problems with this, you sure, you write up this whole backstory, but as Melon said, does it ever go anywhere? Does the handler ever use it? Yeah, so there's there's this whole elaborate uh, body of explanation for how a Delta Green recruitment happens that's presented in the handler's guide. That knowledge, you know, might be useful for a player who's like, oh, you know, I want to be in compliance with this except that it's in a book that's not for players to read and they're not ever going to see. And so the canonical quotation marks explanation for how someone joins Delta Green is not actually presented in the agent's handbook. Not only that, but that is useful information for players. That's It's not just in a book meant for handlers. It's sandwiched between a bunch of information that is only for handlers. Yeah, it's sandwiched between like a, a, a rich body of deep lore that the players are explicitly stated in the book never to find out. And so I think that at the risk of giving away the milk without making them buy the cow, why don't we start with going through how the recruitment process is stated to work? Because I'm betting a lot of our listeners have not seen this. And it's quite similar for the outlaws and the program, but it's not the same. Essentially, in order to be recruited into the organization Delta Green, either one, you must witness the unnatural at some point. You must handle yourself in a way that impresses them or suggests that it's a good idea to have you continue doing that. You must agree to keep your mouth shut when they tell you. You must later agree to the recruitment pass saying, I'm going to keep doing this in exchange for no money because it's important to me. There are multiple levels where you have to prove yourself an exceptional person to join Delta Green. This is, it can work any way you want in your game, and it's di- and it's obviously different for every agent because, first of all, the Cowboys and Outlaws Cowboys and program do it differently because the Outlaws don't have a lot of resources to spend on recruitment. They don't have sort of the visibility, the visibility or the, the omnipresent surveillance apparatus the other guys do, so they can't exactly be monitoring for a lot of incidents. They kind of have to take what they can get. I believe... In the context of the lore, they have one person who's an actual recruiter, and then all the other recruiters are basically just your typical agent or case officer. Uh, this is why that the outlaws and the cowboys, 
they have a deep bench of friendlies to rely on because they can't do the same vetting to find exceptional people. So they're betting one of these guys will prove to be exceptional. And if a full agent falls, they're going to promote one of those guys up. I think that even the program has to do that just because if you look at this at this sort of funnel that determines who they can recruit, they're going to be losing agents a lot faster than they're bringing them in. Because one of the things I keep saying is that Delta Green agents can't actually be as expendable as the books suggest they are if this is the real if this is really the recruitment process. Because otherwise, you're going to be having a much bigger outflow than you are an inflow. But I guess to bring it back to stuff the player can do, you can use that as sort of a template for what your experience of being brought into DG is was like. Or alternatively, the other method that I've seen people do is to say my character was sort of peripherally associated with this and has now been brought in to this mission for their first actual opera. Yeah, uh, all you really need for a Delta Green Agent's backstory is what kind of crazy shit did you get mixed up in? How did you impress the guys on the ground? And why did you accept the offer to join up? And I actually forgot about this, but Will pointed out one time, there is a, a series of random roll tables in Delta Green briefing documents to help you come up with a backstory for your agent if you can't think of one on your own, which is purely in that vein. What was the supernatural event? What was DG's involvement? And how did you help them? You can't use the, the briefing documents for character generation because it doesn't have the actual profession skills. It only has a table of where those profession skills are found. Right. I, I, I remember this part. I remember complaining about this over and over again, that the, the quick reference sheet doesn't actually allow you to build a character. You still have to pass a book around the table, which is bad design. I'll say it. I understand why they do it, because they want people to get the books. But, you know, like I said, don't give away the milk before we make a buy the cow. Now that we have this the sort of mechanical, canon-compliant explanation out of the way, I think what people are really interested in, or at least what I hope they're interested in, is how do you make a backstory that is not overly intricately detailed, but that gives the GM something to work with beyond just the usual someone burned down your village while you were out adventuring. However, I also have something to say about the whole recruitment process, is that recruitment takes time. They don't just come up to you on the the five minutes after your opera and say, hey, we want you in this team. They wait a couple of days, and then they go through all these different processes that take time. So you either want to RP that out with your players, maybe in the context of a home scene. Dole, what if the player says no? Yeah, what I'm hearing is that you run a regular Call of Cthulhu scenario first with everybody a regular person, and then towards the end of that, you end up transitioning to Delta Green as you roleplay out the recruitment. Well, here and there, there are several DG scenarios that are already designed to do that. Uh, off the top of my head, Future Perfect Part 1, uh, not Convergence, but the other one, uh, Puppet Shows the Plays, Poker Night, and the last one, I think it was Reverberations, are all designed to take normal people and bring them into the world of Delta Green. But my question is, now that we've got this, you know, this is what's supposed to happen, I think the question we can draw out of that that's more interesting than just, are you compliant with this set of, you know, this set of setting details that you'll never see? I think the real question to draw out of that is, what made your character say yes? Because this is important because Delta Green is a game that was designed in part to solve a problem with Call of Cthulhu, where 
after a certain point, the players have no reason to do any of this stuff. The players are going to char- their characters are going to get smart enough to say, "Hey, wait! Every time we do this, something fucking horrible happens. Why is this our responsibility? Why don't we just leave? Why don't we just call the police?" That is the joke about I think Masks of Night are looked up specifically, right? You're t- four generations of player characters in, and eventually you're just asking the bellhop at the hotel to help you fight supernatural evil. Well, that scenario is a classic, but it's notorious for just being a meat grinder where. It's just shootout after shootout after shootout and monster after monster after monster. It's not a game, a deep game of cerebral horror. It's a bug hunt spread out across a, a pulpy globetrotting adventure. Yeah, but for Delta Green, how do I... What What's the reason my character said yes to this offer? Was it because he genuinely thought that fighting the scary monsters and saving the planet was important? Was it because he was a criminal and they had evidence that made it so that he couldn't refuse their orders this is interesting because what it sounds to me is that your motivations as a character we've mentioned that motivations don't really have uh, mechanical backing they do a little bit they do a little bit but uh from what you're saying it sounds like that is more important than having a true backstory it's like why do you keep answering this call and going to these horrible places where horrible things happen why aren't you the person who just runs away? Well, Delta Green also does have a way to enforce, uh, enforce is a strong word, but to mechanically represent the backstory that a lot of games don't with bonds. Bonds are important, and they, not just mechanically, but also for thinking about who your character is. Okay, there's a thing in role-playing games that players are usually reluctant to give their characters a backstory with lots of attachments, because that's viewed as just fodder for the, the guy running the game to murder. Delta Green is a game that says that may be true, but you're still not getting away with with not doing it. Yeah, that's a good point, I guess. It seems like rarely are the threats in Delta Green so... Do they get so personal that they're going to go after your loved ones? There are a few modules that I can think of, fan-created or official, that do it. Yeah, and there's like a... I think there's a blurb in the Handler's Guide, even in the introduction about that. Which kind of makes sense, because once you become so invested in fighting the unnatural, it starts to find its way into your home life. Not just through sanity loss and bonds being destroyed. Uh, I've talked about Ex Oblivion before, and I was talking with someone earlier about how that is something, uh, a way to push the players towards the climax of that scenario if they're not investigating it themselves and they have exposed themselves. Maybe the bad guy will attack their bonds and try to coerce the players into rescuing them. Like I said, the more we talk about this, the more I'm thinking an actual written-out backstory isn't terribly important as compared to just having motivations and bonds that kind of demonstrate your place in the world. And I've noticed a couple of people we've played with, it's not uncommon for people to just skip the damaged veterans backgrounds where you kind of adjust your skills and your sanity a little bit to reflect the event that brought you into delta green and i'm just not sure if that's another mechanic people aren't aware of or if they're kind of just sliding on the backstory part of it and yeah i got into delta green because of reasons well part of it also is that the damaged veteran backgrounds you're saying that you're not seeing people take them a lot. I know that for a long time we had a lot of people who were making characters adapted to violence because it is a lot cheaper from a 
from a points perspective to buy it during character generation than it is to get it in play because a lot less risk involved well yeah because first of all losing three the average loss on a d6 is 3.5 which rounds to four so you're getting a you know an effective one one point of charisma for free based versus the average you're also only losing five sanity but the question i guess is not you know is it being adapted to violence a good thing but that's something that players typically uh, reached for because there are a lot of scenarios where it is only a benefit to not care about killing people. Like Observer Effect, a scenario that I often criticize because the only solution is to kill everyone and break everything. And technically that's not the only solution. You could somehow magically render someone unconscious, but as we learned from the Russians' attempt to clear the Moscow theater hostage crisis, most attempts to render a large group of people unconscious kill at least one of them. Yeah, I bring it up because I've seen, when I do see it, I see people getting the adapted to violence background for the reasons you just stated, and they get the hard experience background because that gives you a bunch of extra skill points. I don't really see people take adapted to helplessness and they don't take, uh... Things men was not meant to know. Yeah, that's the one, because both of those put you at a disadvantage, Sandwise. Not only that... But they're also not. So this is this is something that again would be more useful in a regular ass campaign. Think about what you know. What is the benefit actually of having ten percent unnatural? It's not that much. And you can think of like what was the specific incident that got me this background. But in a, in something like we do with open table and you know scenarios and so on, that's not going to come up. The handler's not going to ever see that and say, "Oh, this guy's got a special connection to what's happening in the scenario." Because like uh, if your guy was pulled out of the um, pulled out of the San Francisco Bay by the Marine unit and and essentially came to came back to life on the on the morgue table and has dreams about a city on the sun with coruscant banners of holy vegetation snapping in crystal currents. That's not ever going to come up. There's not ever going to be a scenario where you say, "Oh, hey, this guy's backstory of trying to infiltrate a Cthulhu cult and failing." That that's, there's no there's no likelihood that that is going to come up. So that's a disadvantage of the type of thing that we do, but I wonder how you might translate that into a lesson about designing characters that are more robust in that their personal characteristics are more likely to show up in game. I mean, that's the general problem with some of these scenarios is, especially with one-shots, you build characters around scenarios, you don't build scenarios around characters. Yeah, so I think that's something, again, that it's hard as a handler to... to incorporate the character backstories because you never know if half of them have just sprung out of the ether specifically for this mission. And even if they aren't springing out of the ether, most of the time when people sign up, it's at the last second. And so I've pretty much given up on designing things that incorporate character backstories because I'm either either the character has no backstory or you know the backstory is all made up or on the, on the spot, or I don't know about that the character exists until five minutes before the game. So now that we have all of these ideas about what the problems are and what the benefits are of backstories, let's kind of summarize what should a player do and what should they not do when creating their character's backstory, or if they do create a character's backstory at all. I do think it's good to be minimalistic, to err more on the side of less incredibly elaborate descriptions. But I think the important thing is to be able to answer the question, what was it that brought you to Delta Green's attention? And then if you take a damaged veteran package, you should think about how you got that, what your character's experience was. Yeah, I would say if you're having trouble with coming up with 
uh, a backstory for yourself, check out briefing documents. It's pay what you want on drive through. So you can just use the tables in there to come up with something as much as you're going to put thought into how you got into t- in touch with Delta Green. Think about why you accepted the offer and why you keep putting yourself in harm's way and try and reflect that in your motivations or your bonds because those are more likely to actually come up during a scenario. Anyway, I read an interesting thread on the, on the Delta Green Reddit. As we all know, there's a split between the program, the air quotes official conspiracy, and the Cowboys, the uh, out in the cold, air quotes unofficial conspiracy, the old ASAL style. And somebody made, made the point that there's really no new Cowboys showing up because most new people get put into the program. Uh, so what happens when all the Cowboys die off? I mean, are they actively recruiting? Do people get disenfranchised and join them? What, uh, what do you think? Where have all the cowboys gone? Where? Ha- I'm not going to do that. It's going to end up on the fucking cutting room floor. I refuse to sing for that. That's that's going to be the one that makes it in. In my view, I guess, like, the is it the cowboys or the outlaws? Is that what they're currently going by? I guess outlaws in the current day, and then cowboys is back in the 90s and before then. Anyways, the one that's not the one with government funding. I guess, to me, they feel kind of more like a, like a closed door fraternity like a secret society thing almost i mean i think one of the important points to realize or at least i think is that the average delta green agent whether they're programmer cowboys is not out there recruiting they're busy dealing with mythos threats and existential horrors and not so existential horrors in the program you have people who were just analysts and case officer types who are actually out there looking for new talent looking for reports that indicate somebody may have had a brush with the unnatural where they can uh, sweep in and pick them up. But I feel like the Cowboys don't have that infrastructure, so they're just so busy fighting back the darkness that they're not going to take time to recruit new agents. So, you know, they're just going to die out. You'll only have the program in, in another generation. Don't the Cowboys routinely get steered towards things by the program? Well, to a limited degree, it might be the other way around. Like, if whatever outlaw cell that has contact with the program they might be able to identify threats that they don't actually have the manpower to take on themselves so they refer it up to the program i think maybe it could flow both ways but it's the point of contention between them is that like they just want to make sure they're not stepping on each other's toes so they have like the designated people you know my, my people get to your people Think it, I mean, so one, I guess we should we should say that you know whatever your canon is 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 fine. So if you want to play it up that they're friendly, great, that's awesome. If you want to play it up they're not friendly, that's awesome too. But I feel like you know since the program is basically majestic and the cowboys kind of hate that, I feel like they are split and and not it would not be so so ready to work together because they know that those guys are the old system and and they're bad. So I think if there's any collaboration, it is begrudgingly, it is temporary, ad hoc. All right, I'll help you kill this Shagoth, but then, you know, if I see you again, I'm running over with my car. I think in the Handler's Guide, it says that the people who maintain this relationship are old agents who used to, if they were not part of the same cell, then they worked closely together a couple of times. And the implication is definitely that it it is really just kind of a gentleman's agreement between these two people and so if these guys ever stop talking to each other or something happens to one of them that relationship is pretty much gone now something i uh 
uh, I think I've probably probably discussed before is that I, I really like the cell structure and like my personal perfect Delta Green Canon is a program that uses a cell structure because I think it's it'd be even though it's an official conspiracy you know you can't hide everything so you still want to have that compartmentalization and I think that most agents on the ground would not know they're working for the government officially even though they you know kind of pseudo are so I tend to mash them up and then in, in my get in my perfect head canon the outlaws or cowboys are people who either realize that or who've just gone so far off the reservation with with you know adapting to violence and I mean they they know the truth that you have to burn down a whole village to save to save you know the city uh and the program may not be willing to take those steps but the ones who do get kind of ostracized out into the cold and, and keep fighting the good fight like the fundamental differences in their approaches is that like the cowboys are burn everything break everything kill who you need to kill and the program is like wait hold on we could use that i, mean, I feel like the program is uh bur- i mean like every Delta green player is burn everything that's just if you're doing it right they're just super paranoid so uh you know uh, heron how does it work in your in, in the mind of burning heron uh the outlaws specifically or just both Delta Greens. Yeah, I mean, both Delta Greens, the, the relationship between them, etc. Uh, like I said, I like the idea that whatever collaboration there is between the two groups is really informal and maybe even not really conscious among the leadership of both sides. The impression I got was that the outlaws do not really want any resources or personnel offered by the program, whereas the program is more willing to take on something that the outlaws might be offering them. So the outlaws are going to stick it into a green box and the program is going to stick it into a March Technologies box? Yeah, essentially. I think that the outlaws have really gone overboard with Alphonse's thing about compartmentalization. And so it's just whatever might have been kind of an acceptable precaution before is now almost totemic, like very reflexive. And so eventually it's going to balkanize until it's 26 or more different groups that all call themselves Delta Green. Very good diction there. I like it. You don't get to use balkanization very much. It's like using it <laughs> epistemological or... Give me time. I'll work it in somehow. So I feel like, I mean, even I've written scenarios where a program gets messed with by the outlaws because it's a it's an easy foil. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think in my head, it might be a cool thing to write sometime where the you know the the program agents are doing their thing and they run across a, a cowboy cell and they're like all right now we gotta deal with these idiots and the cowboy cells like all right you know what you're up against we need this is horrifying we need your help here's the deal please band together with us instead of being you know aggressive and and dismissive they're like they recognize that they need the help of the other agents and they try to you know form a temporary alliance i'm not sure i, I mean at least i haven't seen that happen that could be a fun little thing to riff on and it would subvert the normal player expectations of all cowboys are bad guys well, that's if your players know, like, the lore and the canon. But if they don't, it's still a pretty cool interaction. Well, I think it's fun. I played in a scenario one time where it was a modern-day Outlaws game, and so we were sneaking around investigating something, and suddenly a bunch of guys from all kinds of government agents show up, and it was very clearly, oh, shit, this is, this is the real deal. These are the official guys. And so we tried to... We tried to avoid contact with them as much as possible because, like, NRO Delta is on our minds. We were pretty sure this is going to end with us getting shot in the face. And when we did cross paths with them, they were the first ones to say, nope, nope, we just want to talk. We'll put our weapons down first. That's pretty interesting. So, uh, any other cowboy and outlaws thoughts? Yeah, uh, I had the idea that 
you know, I like like the spycraft and the whole paranoia aspect of it. So what if your players are members of a cell and they never actually meet their, their case officer and they just keep getting their uh, instructions or, you know, their targets via like a dead drop or letters in the mail or something like that. And then the requests just keep getting increasingly harder or more bizarre. And it turns out that it's just like someone else has just co-opted them and is using them to do all their dirty work, like clean clean their house, do their dirty laundry, so to speak. So you should write that up for the shotgun scenario contest when it comes around again. Someone has Mr. Miyagi'd them. Like, you think you're going on a top-secret spy mission, but really you're just cleaning the case officer's car? No, no, no. I don't I don't literally mean cleaning their house. I mean, like, uh... Oh, I'm much less interested now. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have to roll to see how well you scrub the tires on their uh, Cadillac. Well, here's an, actually a spin on that idea. I'm thinking Operation Stop Repo, except case officer is Saphir. He's faked his death, and now he's using the agents to try and get all his shit back together i'd uh, be perfect he he, he could kind of let it slip slowly by just knowing a little too much until the players figure it out see i think that's the way you do like a cowboys game you really have to play up like the paranoia thing the whole like being out in the cold aspect of it i think is the important part for a cowboys game i I also would like to do a game at, at some point if i ever get to a real campaign again i mean right now i'm so used to just one shots and one-offs but you know every now and then a campaign will kind of grind to a halt because you lose some players so they die you know they die or they go insane or you just lose them to you know inertia so say you start with like five agents and you end up down to two well you could run those guys off into the cold and then kind of put them on standby for a minute and then bring in the other team the new players and they have forced them to work together on a mission and either bring the catboys back into the fold or have the cowboys be like look we're on the block what you're working for is kind of bullshit. Someone you come with us and we'll, we'll show you what the real Delta Green's all about. So it could be a fun way to introduce new characters. Oh, that's that's an interesting way to like break up the meta. Like you started it as a Cowboys game and then like as your Cowboys died off, you introduce players who have characters from the program and then they both have, have this like standoff, but they're both trying to accomplish like the same thing. I mean, I think any good... Any good original idea needs to be kind of torn apart and riffed on. So there's a lot of fun ways to work the Cowboys into your game or the program into your game in a new and exciting way. And who's to say there's only, you know, one or two uh, options out there? Wasn't your original question that you think that the Cowboys are going to have a hard time recruiting and then eventually they'll die off? Yeah, I think that's true. But I think we'll also see disenfranchised program agents keep breaking off into, you know, hey, your orders are stupid and we're not going to Every time we find a really, you know, insane artifact, we drop it out to some shady assholes in business suits and we're getting tired of the shit. So we're going to go do our own thing and goodbye. So they become the new cowboys. So maybe there'll be a constant influx in that way. So you're saying like maybe they want to see like things through to the end on their own end and that'd be an incentive for them to like break off and do things on their own? Yeah, certainly could be. Because you never, you never really see once, once you pass it up the chain, you never really know exactly what happens. Well, top men are working on it. Top men. My thing is, I think all the different outlaw cells are going to lose touch with A-Cell and then forget they were ever part of a bigger group. They're just going to be like a local posse that goes hunting for Bigfoot, except occasionally they find a Bigfoot. 
It might be also interesting. I mean, no one says you have to run a Delta Green game and, and have agents be either either thing. They could simply be like an army unit that runs into something runs into something unnatural, deals with it, and then says to themselves, guys, if the shit is out there, we have to deal with it. And the government's never going to believe us, so let's just find more of it and kill it ourselves. Uh, and then, like, the end of the campaign is uh, someone contacting them from either the outlaws or the program. Yeah, maybe. But, I mean, let's... I mean, Put yourself in the perspective of an army officer, right? You know, you—that's uh, not hard for me to do. Yeah. So you uh, you realize that you're you and your men are running out the reservation trying to chase unnatural things, and then someone in authority comes to visit you. You'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Fuck, fuck you, man. It's like envision like the Dirty Dozen, but uh, their mission isn't to steal Nazi gold; it's to kill some occult monsters. Maybe Nazi gold is the real monster because it's like the financial war machine. No, that'd be a, a really fun thing, uh, especially as like an introductory thing for the game. Like, you don't tell your players exactly what's going on. Um, you're just like, hey, you guys want to be some uh, warfighters? You know, roll up a combat medic, roll up a, a designated marksman, you know, roll up a demolitions guy. And not roll them all together and you have uh, the plot of that stupid bomb disposal movie. Which one is that? The, the Hurt Locker. Lock, there yeah. you go. Ugh. Anyways, they see the monster, they kill the monster, and they're like, whew, we did it. And then there's like a dozen more. <laughs> yeah, one of them actually reads the book they found, and they're like, yo, I think somebody summoned like a hundred of these things, and uh, the giant portal is in uh, the middle of ISIS-held territory. Oh, now what do you do? And then it becomes uh, Three Kings. And then it just ends, you know, dramatically racking the hammer back or the bolt back on a 50 cal. When I, when I hear um, getting players to act, I think of a problem that probably everyone has had when running a game, and probably also one they've had when playing, where the players have a situation that could potentially be quite dangerous, or could have negative consequences, or even it might not, but they just, even though it's the perception that, that it could, makes the players unwilling to commit to a course of action until they have very thoroughly analyzed and planned for every possible eventuality and that's even without the players having substantial disagreements about the correct course of action is if they do then you can add you can multiply that time by however much longer it takes and i think delta green might be a worse game for this than other games because it's a game about having extreme consequences for failure or not for failure so much as for rash action the delta green developers have said numerous times that they're preferred mode of play is one of dealing with the consequences of actions and if that is your wheelhouse then you should expect that the players are going to do as much as possible to front load mitigating that and jake i know you had some specific complaints about this with a game that you ran recently yes it it was supposed to be a really simple introduction to get them to the actual bulk of the investigation I was, it was a honeypot operation. There was a guy who bought like what was supposed to be like a medieval tome off of uh, the dark web. And I was like, here's a, here's a fake copy of the book. Here's a FedEx uniform. Go check this guy out. See if there's anything that needs to be seen. And what followed was like 45 minutes of the players arguing about, well, we could lure him to a P.O. box. Oh, no, a P.O. box wouldn't work. Why not like an Amazon locker? And then they were like discussing how Amazon lockers work. And the whole time I'm just like, guys, there's a FedEx 
uniform on the table, you could just deliver it. You know, because the, the, the investigation starts once they've made contact with this guy, once they start investigating this guy. And that took so long. So right away I see a solution. What's that? The game starts with one of the agents in a FedEx uniform outside his house. Well, I, I'd like to at least give the illusion of uh, player agency. I like giving the illusion of player agency as well, but if the scenario assumes a specific sequence of events, then it's best to start having assumed that sequence of events has occurred. Well, it's not so much that they were... My issue isn't with them planning. It was with them taking so long to come up with an idea before finally acting. I'm sure there's a joke in here somewhere about how uh, the time it takes players to come up with an executed plan is inversely proportional to how simple a task it is. So I think the thing people will often say is if you have a scenario that depends on the players being you know, captured or injured or something like that, you need to start the game with that having already happened. And you need to ask them, how did this circum- this set of events come about? But that's more just for their personal... like. But Melon, what if the answer is my character would never allow himself to be captured alive? Well, that is most of my characters, but only because um, they got like 9 intelligence and 40,000 firearms. But what do you do when that happens? You ask them to bring a different character that would be captured. Heron, what's the, uh, it's in The Things We Leave Behind. It's the one scenario where it starts off with the players being captured by, uh, Icorn? Oh yeah, Forget-Me-Not, where it starts off, it starts off with all the players in a crashed van, and they have no idea how they got there. And then, like, slowly they piece together, like, the things that they've done, and they did some pretty horrible things, and then there's, like, a whole, uh, box in the scenario about what to do if a player says, well, my character would have never done that. And it, it boils down to, well, you did this time because sometimes things are so horrible that uh, we act in ways we wouldn't think we would. We behave irrationally uh, in response to the unexplainable and the unnatural. That's good, but I would like a solution to this problem that isn't just straight railroading. Well, at a certain point, you have to kind of expect that players are going to be on board with the premise of the game. I mean, I've talked many times about the idea of, oh, your character doesn't want to go on the adventure. Okay, well, that's what I prepared. So he either finds a re- find a reason for him to go on the adventure or roll a new character who will go on the adventure. That happened actually in a Delta Green game that I ran. Um, somebody had an agent who may have been based on, on Archer, which was kind of a funny gag, but he gets the call and he's like, no, nah, I can't come. I'm busy. And then he hangs up and I'm like, okay roll an agent who will go on the mission. And he was like, oh, oh, shit, shit. Okay, no, sorry. So I think the thing you can run into there is that as we we discussed this last time, and I know that, that you weren't here, but I'll summarize, we don't all necessarily agree on what the basic premise of Delta Green is or what people's expectations should be. Well, we don't, but I don't think we have to agree on the basic premise that this is a game that the handler has prepared, and that's that's what we're playing tonight. So you either... You either find a reason to participate, or you can sit in the corner by yourself. I was thinking of of things that I could do that weren't just bullshit, my character would do that, but that would potentially actually torpedo a game right at the start. And I was thinking about Agent Erebus, because Agent Erebus is now totemically compelled to carry his magic fire axe with him wherever he goes. (laughs) He can't ever get on an airplane again, because they will try to separate it from him, and he will kill somebody with it. You wouldn't deprive an old man of his fire axe, would you? Yes, exactly. He can't even check it with his luggage? That's probably the way out, as the handler says, you you know it's in the luggage the whole time, and then the guy gets up and harasses the flight attendant, making sure that his bags got on the plane. 
Oh, and then he has to wait at the baggage claim, and it like it's it takes too long, and he makes sandy rolls because it's still not here. It's been half an hour. Then he goes into the conveyor belt system looking for his luggage. It's uh, Die Hard Two. Exactly. See, that's 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 good content. So that's um that's one way is to you guess use your brain. Uh, Heron, I think it was you that maybe or maybe Jake that brought up a couple of subsystems that some other RPGs use for handling this problem by moving time ahead to the actual resolution of the action, and then including a, a retroactive mechanism for what the players decided to do. This is also what every heist movie ever does. Exactly. Like, Ocean's Eleven did that, Hustle does that every fucking episode, and that's in fact, is the format of the show. It just... It, it sounds like you're taking your GM into a back room and you're kicking his ass and saying, no, that's not what I want to play, this is what actually happened. Uh, doesn't Red Markets also do a similar thing? Uh, yeah, there's like a flashback thing uh, when your fa- when the party faces negotiating. Another one says, well, I'm digging through his trash to see if I can find out anything that's like he wants to hide. And then the negotiator's like, hmm, how about this illicit child you have? Or this, uh, this, uh, this bastard child of yours that you've been secretly sending money for. What about them? Wait, the child was in the trash the whole time? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that was a bad example. Or was it? And I think we've talked about, uh, if we don't want to roll, because that's one of Delta Green's, like, core philosophies. If it's not exciting, if there's not consequences, if it's something your character could reasonably do, don't roll the dice. Which could take into account, you know, planning out uh, a heist, so to speak. You've got your, you know, criminal or your federal agent, the same thing. And they have a good criminology. Uh, So you could just say, well, you know, using this, you found a contact in the area who can get you the building plans of this building. You know, using their, you know, surveillance skills, they can find out the guards patterns, patrol patterns. You know, you could formulate this thing uh, in the abstract. And not have to roll for it until something exciting happens when when something isn't uh, as they had planned for. Yeah, I think that that's a way to make planning a less obnoxious. That's something that I think you would do if you wanted the players to plan more. Because I think one of the things that creates reluctance to plan in these types of games is something that the Alexandrian described quite well in their article on rolling to failure. Which is that if you make the players roll for every stage of a plan or for every mechanical interaction, they will always... Not always. If they're smart, they'll gravitate towards the things that require the fewest rolls, and oftentimes it's not planning at all, it's just winging it. See, anytime you introduce more rolls into a game, the chance that one of the rolls is going to fail increases. That's just probability. The more you roll the dice, the more likely you are to fail. And it means that plans in that case should be simpler, which is a good thing, and have fewer failure points. But if the if the thing determining the number of failure points is the amount of planning you're doing, then that's certainly going to discourage it. But this but this this is a fix that makes people more willing to plan out and that's good, but we want to discuss a solution to the reverse problem. Uh, I know that some people in this room have had success in the past with setting time limits on planning. Whom are, whom are you referring to? Oh, was that directed at me? I, I missed that, sorry. People who have had had set have set time limits on planning in the past. I'm what how how am I the scenario, the whole context again. Glory, the scenario glory for Eclipse Phase was, I believe, the one that you. Oh, um, continuity. Yeah, that one. Um, that one I run with a real time clock of three hours because it mostly because it's funny. But let's say that instead of running a clock for the whole scenario, 
you were to just run it for the beginning. How do you mean? Well, let's say that um, I don't want to hear more than half an hour of discussion about how we do this because there's three more hours of adventure to be ground through today. Uh, you know, I did have some a similar framework set up when I ran games at Gen Con, but it, it never became necessary. I think also that we've we've said before that the format of so many Delta Green adventures doesn't actually allow for any planning at the beginning. Yeah, it's it's oh sh- oh shit, shit's fucked. Get in there. You got you got there for you know twenty minutes before the or before the the adventure started, and there's no possible way to do any legwork or do any of the actual investigative stuff. You can't requisition anything that would take an official review because that'll take days and you have minutes. And that type of adventure, we've talked about it like we don't like it, but one of the good things about it is that it does. Interesting to me, now that we're talking about time, is that a lot of the times when players are doing this planning, there's kind of this perception that they're just standing on the sidewalk having these big conversations and time within the game world really isn't passing. So they might spend 40 minutes and then they walk away and nothing has changed. I would like to push back against that, though, because I don't think it's necessarily completely fair to imply that all time spent on out-of-character discussion is time that has elapsed in the game world, because so much of these discussions usually revolve around stuff that the characters would already know. So much of it is using this low-bandwidth medium of communication to describe usually one at a time features of the game world that would be immediately obvious to anyone in the situation itself. And so I think that that is not necessarily a completely fair way to handle it. I think that I think that you're right that if if they're having this conversation in full view of the guys that they're trying to sneak up on or whatever, then that's going to get them in trouble. But I think that a lot of these a lot of these endless revolving debates boil down to the players genuinely not knowing what's happening in the game world. And I think that's something that Gumshoe tried their best to address in Fall of Delta Green by writing, uh, Ken Height wrote in that book, if the pl- if, as a player, if you are speculating and planning too much, then you should go out and get more clues. And as the GM, if your players are doing that, you should give them more clues. And I think that both of those are easier said than done and might not necessarily solve the problem because more information might just mean another factor that has to be factored into the plan. But it's at least a solution of some kind or a concrete action that someone can take in response to noticing a circumstance that's not what they want. And that's that's all fair. I think that's a worthy discussion in itself, but uh, that's not really how I perceive the problem as it was originally presented. I think my interpretation of what the subject chief came up with was more like dithering. Here's a book. Here's the guy who bought the book. Find out why he wants it. And then we spent 40 minutes trying to figure out how to deliver this book to him. That seemed like it wasn't really planning. The degree of planning was disproportionate to the task at hand. Especially given that the solution was literally right in front of you. Yeah, so my thinking when I bring up time is to say... Maybe time is passing while the players are talking about this and the game world is changing and the guy isn't home and now you might have an opportunity to slip in and see what's going on. I guess what I should have done was just like ask, hey guys, hold up, what? let's pause for a second. Why are you reluctant to move forward? What are you afraid of? And then just mitigated that? That would have worked, yeah. Yeah, I think that's... That's an interesting, because it's difficult to have that conversation in a way that doesn't just, and you never want to just be the guy explicitly telling the players, like, this section of the game is not dangerous, so you can do as you like, but 
on the other hand, I've I've done that before or been tempted to do it because the players have misinterpreted something so severely, like because of the way that I speak, they think that an NPC is suspicious and out to get them because of a, a turn of phrase that they use or something. And then from there, develop this elaborate complex of paranoia, which is fine for Delta Green, but not when it makes going to the building take three hours. It is, at its core, a compromise between the setting themes of being careful to about what you're doing and expecting extreme consequences for rash action and fun, which is, I don't want to sit here for the whole session while you interact with one, while you think about interacting with one NPC. Another solution, just uh, give them some options. Like, uh, I have this thing ran. I know how it's going to go generally. Um, you could, and then provide, you know, three or four different things for them to do. You could deliver the book straight to his house. You could do a stakeout. You could look through their online social media. You could, you know... Did you make it clear to them that he was expecting the book to be delivered by us in a certain way and that anything else would have been suspicious and probably blown the cover? No, no. Okay, I think that would have done it for you because if, if let's say, let's say I order, I order a package through the information superhighway and I order it through a certain, you know, I order it delivered to my house and someone takes it, a guy walks up to me on the street and hands it to me, that is setting off every alarm bell in my head because, like, wait. I mean, they, hypothetically, they know my face and they could probably figure out where I worked, but if there's a specific method that he's expecting the delivery there, then anything besides that is just going to cause more problems for the players. But I feel like maybe we're n- I'm nitpicking too much the specific circumstance and not drawing a generalizable lesson about what to do. I think a generalizable lesson is to make sure that you and your players are on the same page and that there are not assumptions that you've made that your players have overlooked. I also think there's a good point, Melon, about uh, if I'm remembering Jake in that scenario, we were posing as the people he bought this book from, and so it was our discretion to arrange with him how it was going to be delivered. Oh, never mind then. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's a point in being told here's how you're going to deliver it and then that kind of gives you a push to get moving rather than trying to figure it out right you know i guess you just have to decide when you want to give players total agency or when you want to give them some agency or when you just want to do what will said there's someone in a fedex uniform delivering a book which one of you is it yeah think of your scenario hook as like uh an inverted funnel where it starts off pretty narrow and then it opens up from there so once you make contact with the guy or whatever the starting point of the scenario is, you can investigate it and that will open up more pathways, but maybe don't leave it so open at the very start. That was episode 8 of The Green Box. In the description, you'll find several links to our r slash night at the opera subreddit, our discord server, and several social media platforms that we use. We'd love if you would contact us. Thanks for listening. We'll be seeing you.